0: All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nichol. Special guest with us on today, um, Dan Staten. Dan is somebody I followed for a, a very long time. It's a bit of a surreal moment to get him on the podcast today. And it was funny, and I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, Dan. I don't want to say you were like the first guy, but you're one of the OGs when it comes to looking at hunting or a hunter- as an athlete cuz i think most people have really short memories and this is actually like in the span of hunting this is a n- relatively new concept like i'm even going to say really popularized in the last 5 years and, and and i and i think you were one of the first guys i can think of another another couple guys but i think that's when you really landed on my radar cuz i was i was a forestry engineer for 15 years and i ran around in the woods looking for timber and i always felt more like an athlete than a tradesman just because it was so physical being out in the mountains. And then when I got into backcountry hunting, I was like, I feel more like an athlete than a a hunter given the definition of a hunter that I would have like grown up around, which is like the Elmer Fudd dude in a red Mac jacket, drinking beer in a truck. I was like this, those two visions or those two definitions didn't, didn't align for me. Maybe, would you would you agree that 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 that's kind of like a, a staple of one of your philosophies and that this is a somewhat new definition as far as the lifespan of hunting goes
1: yeah, well, first thanks for having me on Jay. Uh, I've seen some of your stuff uh, known about you for a while and uh excited to be on here and really just chat with you. I love podcasts just to get to know the host better as an excuse, which is cool for me. but um yeah the hunting athlete movement is nothing new. I didn't invent it and I don't believe that, uh, the original hunters were not athletes. I don't, I think you had to earn your stripes to be a hunter. And I'm just talking historically looking back and I don't know how far back we need to look, but either hunting or gathering probably had your best starting lineup hunting, uh, to secure food for everybody. Uh, where we're at today with technology and the limited resources out there as far as game, wild game goes, um, there's a finite number of ungulates or animals to hunt and and places to hunt them. And so for me, hunting and athleticism and working on your craft just gives me a leg up on the competition. I think hunting is very competitive nowadays because it's a um, it's not new, but if there's new hunters and there's more people in the mountains or in the backcountry or just on public land. And I, I, for one, feel like I need every advantage I can get. And if I can be a better athlete that I might have maybe more, um, I might be able to withstand the elements or whatever mother nature throws at me, I might be able to keep my head in the game longer. I might be able to not talk myself into going home early or packing it in. I might be able to capitalize on an opportunity that materializes um, at the last minute that I would not have had if I had just succumbed to, you know, weakness. And so I do think survival of the fittest does have a degree. I don't think you have to be in shape to kill animals. I'm never ever going to stand on a soapbox and say, if you're not fit, you're not going to be successful because that's just not true. But, uh, what I realized, and I think this might lead to one of your other questions is that I love hunting so much that I want to do it as long as I'm on this planet on this rock. And so I just want to have a trajectory Jay, where I can hunt the rest of my life. And I feel like it wouldn't be fun to be on the sidelines in my fifties or sixties or seventies or eighties. I don't want to be sidelined. I just want to be out there. I want to be packing elk out off the mountain in my eighties with my kids as kids.
0: The end. Yeah. hundred percent. I love it, man. I also, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. So let's back up a bit. When did, did you grow up in a strong hunting family? Like when did hunting come on your radar? When was hunting something for you that became part of your life?
1: Uh, We grew up poor. My dad was a pastor. He killed deer for dinner. Um, So I was exposed to dead deer hanging, eating deer meat. Uh, He wasn't an elk hunter. I remember following around the woods uh, when I was five and six years old, grouse hunting, um, begging him to let me go with him. Deer hunting. Um, I got my hunter safety card in Washington when I was 10. So took the test and was able to go on my first hunt um that fall. So was started hunting early on, I would say, had some early success. Um, most of that hunting got sidelined once I went to junior high and high school sports took over my life. And so I didn't come back to hunting until I was out of high school, but always been in my blood. Uh, obviously my dad did a good enough job to make me love it, love spending time with him that when I was 18 years old and graduated, I wanted to go hunting again.
0: Right. Um, so what, what were your sports? Is there, is there one particular, or were you just like an athletic guy that liked to play? And I still,
1: yeah, I still don't classify myself as athletic. I'm a guy who tries hard and that's not changed. I still am somebody who just has to put the work in. But uh, baseball and football, for sure. Size-wise, if I was just bigger, I feel like I could have really gone far with football. I liked contact. There wasn't a lot of rules When I played, helmet-to-helmet was cool. Um, So I love the physicality of football. Uh, But baseball was probably more my jam. And I did pursue baseball. I played all the way through high school. Had a, a couple opportunities to play no name community college baseball, and ultimately decided to shut it down and pursue my career, my st- my studies, and hunting.
0: So your your master's is in exercise science, correct?
1: Yeah. Exercise physiology and undergrad is exercise science. They're both about the same.
0: Okay. And so when did you know that like the study of the human body or the study of kinetics or human physiology was something that fascinated you?
1: Early on, uh, 14, 15 years old, I was training with a mentor, putting on muscle for sports, seeing the dividends of hard work and nutrition. Uh, I was studying for personal training certifications while I was still in high school. I was hired as a personal trainer right outside of high school. It was a great job for me. I could set my schedule around my school and still have clients. And so I have been in the fitness space since
0: 2001 yeah okay now and you know this is this is tossing it back but i'm And this is just more of a personal curiosity question what types of approaches were you were you taking to training back then are we like pretty sports dominant are we doing bro split type stuff are we high volume are we progressive overload just just curious what the flavor of the day and what how you enjoyed training back then was
1: It's just a continuous evolution. I would say I started like anybody, uh, chest on Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays with a little bit of body part accessory. But no, I did dive into the literature and some textbooks. I did understand progressive overload. I did understand the differences between strength, endurance, and hypertrophy. I was pretty pretty little and I wanted hypertrophy. So a lot of my training early on probably would be categorized as Uh, isolation and body part training, you know, higher reps type, trying to make muscles get as big as possible, purely aesthetic driven as a young man. Um, But that did change as I got into college and um, started working with real strength and conditioning coaches and the athletic performance got exposed to more explosive movements with Olympic weightlifting, obviously, which for those that don't know, that's your clean and jerk snatch. And then every variation under the sun of those movements and just trying to create more powerful injury resistant athletes. And that's where I really took a deep dive into, you know, probably more what would be considered sports performance and functional fitness.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. That makes a lot of sense to me actually, because most of the CrossFit guys I know who excel both on a performance and a technical perspective had some type of previous Olympic training before the exposure to CrossFit because some in my, some of that stuff is just so technical. I think that's really, you know, some of the stuff that holds people back or creates opportunities for barriers. So that actually makes sense to me that that was something you were exposed to earlier on because it makes that transition, um, into, using those types of methodologies in a more high volume or, or high rep situation, a lot more realistic as well. I think.
1: Yeah. There's like a a place for Olympic weightlifting, but high volume, high rep Olympic weightlifting was one of my early critiques of CrossFit. I was not a huge fan of CrossFit in 2006 and seven I thought it was the dumbest programming available online. And um, obviously my mind's changed about that. I still got love for CrossFit, but uh, for hunters listening, if you're an adult onset hunter, you know, you probably don't need to be worrying about doing snatch balances, snatch pulls, and all sorts of that kind of like, It just requires a ton of skill and mobility and and who's got time for that. But some of the principles of CrossFit still to this day are awesome. And I think people could adopt them to improve their performance for the mountains.
0: I I, I would agree full stop with all that. I think you will also be hard pressed and I'm, I, you know, I had my CrossFit days there no longer. Um, I still respect it as a, as a training modality, but I think you'd be hard pressed to find another philosophy or training approach that has had such an overall positive impact, not only on people's results, but on people's perspective, like what people think is hard and how far some people are willing to push each other. Like just the the training in CrossFit that I did do and watching people like discover new ceilings and breakthrough things. Like it, it really is well designed to kind of foster that t- those types of breakthroughs and the, the group kind of psychology and all that kind of stuff. Like I think you got to be a little bit careful with some of the Kool-Aid. As with anything in life, you think critically, ask lots of questions. But that caveat aside, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find another methodology that has had such a profound impact on society as a whole.
1: Yeah, I didn't think that uh, some of the programming was safe when I was from the outside looking in. But I did dive into it, read some of the founder's literature, some of his like formation articles, his early writings and philosophies and theories. And um, he's one of the first guys to put kind of physics and mathematics into the equation of fitness, Right. whereas a lot of the textbooks were just more of rate of perceived exertion, target heart rate, energy system training one, two and three he started doing power output equations and measuring a barbell and how far it's traveling. And then this thing called the clock where you're timing, how much work and giving a three power equal sign from power output to intensity. And I was like, what is he talking about dug in and realized a lot of stuff he was saying is true. Like intensity is not a feeling. It's not a, it's not emotion or commotion that you cause inside the gym. If you're grunting, is that intense? Or if you're on a run with a specific heart rate, does that mean the runs now intense? Um, so I really appreciated some of that, uh, looking back now, having been pa- I'm past CrossFit, I've sold my CrossFit gym. I have a gym out here in, in the backyard that people will think all I do is CrossFit, but I do a blurred, this, a blurry mix of everything. Uh, I'm just trying to have fun and stay fit and stay in elk shape. I'm trying to not get out of elk shape because it sucks. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm 40, man. Like I'm not training for CrossFit games anymore. Um, it's not my identity. Uh, I just want longevity. I, it's all about trajectory. And I'll keep bringing it back to that.
0: You know, people always ask me what's the best training system. And I said, the one you're going to keep doing. I d- I don't care what it is. There is no best. It's the one you will enjoy. Like, my thing I'm deeply passionate about bodybuilding and same thing I'm 43 I ain't gonna win an Olympia and I try and be very clear on the channel like I'm not telling you you have to go bodybuild to be a sheep hunter in fact it, it it's probably counterproductive in some regards but like I love it it what get, you know I got I got chess later today and I couldn't be more excited I got all my meals timed out I'll have all my shakes made up like I'm just deeply passionate about it. And then I put a little bit of a spin on it so that it can aid me in my hunting as, as, as much as possible. But same thing, man, like you've got to find those things that you love and you're deeply passionate about. And it's that question, how do you get motivated to train? It's like motivated to train, like try and get in my way. Like, it, it's not a question. It's like, how do I only train five days this week? Because I know I need at least two rest days to operate at my peak potential and, and, how do I stop myself from going in on those two rest days? Those are the, those are the, when you're, when you're doing things that you truly love. I think that's those, are, that's the situation you, you then find yourself in is like, how do I hold myself back to like a reasonable volume of training?
1: I preach brother preach. Uh, I'm filling. you. I, I generally take, I do some sort of crazy split that's like four in a row. Yep. And then. And honestly, that fourth day is I'm pretty beat up, but I I sure like the dividends mentally of like forcing myself. Yes. I'm I'm sitting at a day four right now. I'm going to train today. It's going down. Yeah. Um, But man, does that really make me pump the brakes on day five? It's truly a rest rest day. Um, I do like active rest days, but those can turn into workouts as well. So I've I've pulled back and um, I kind of like the four on one off. One on one off, and that's a weird split, right? Like no one really probably does that, but that's what I do. That's that's my sweet spot, and you found yeah. your sweet spot. But I think we both can agree that motivation is a false god. It's a false prophet. It's not even. A, it's like not even a thing. It's a it's a feeling. Yeah, feelings come and go. Fleeting. I woke up tired today. I drink a cup of coffee. I feel happy today. Yeah, I read. I saw some news. I got just pissed off on the news, all feelings. None of my feelings are going to get in the way of my disciplined decisions. And I think when you start to stack disciplined decisions over time, there's this mental like gain that you're going to use in the field of hunting. Because if you can't make yourself work out and eat healthy and go to bed early, you got to stay up late and watch Netflix. How the F word are you going to stay in the field when you're not seeing game, you're running into other hunters, you're homesick, your food sucks, your boots broke, So like your truck, like stuff goes wrong in the mountains. And if you don't have repetition at being tough and making yourself stick it out, I, I how do you expect to just rise to this level one month out of the year? I don't see it, uh, at least for me can only talk about me. I have to stay in it year round. And that's what the discipline thing does for me when it comes to training. It's not a motivational thing.
0: Well, and I think it's a muscle like, like anything else, like I'm in the biz- business of behavior for my day job and a behavioral strategist. And we talk a lot about, about habits and how to make things unconscious um tendencies, because you have to exert energy every time you're trying to it's like the laws of physics apply to human beings just like they do to anything else. And if you're going to try and change your own momentum, it's going to require energy. And, you, you know, you have to make a decision and you have to take action every time you do that. And it, and if you're not making those decisions on a regular basis and you're not taking those actions on a regular basis, then they're harder when you do them on these, these rare occasions. But if you're doing it all the time to the point where you become unconsciously competent at it and it just becomes second nature... I almost think like like life life just gets easier because it's this muscle that's just getting flexed all the time and it just becomes stronger and you stop thinking about it as much. And then you're more like this machine that now it's just like the, the decision is like, okay, where do I point the machine? Like what is the goal that I want to want to achieve? And what direction do I need to go in to achieve that goal?
1: I can't argue. I think um, we're all kind of defined by our behaviors, whether we're honest with ourselves about those behaviors there's not somebody out there that doesn't have behaviors they're not proud of 100%. myself included yep um, but having the courage to create the energy and to make those decisions to do something about it that's that's what's exciting to me and and that's there's just somewhere along the line where I figured out how special elk hunting was to me where I harnessed that that passion to help everything else in life um, and that's kind of what my message has been is to to be a proud hunter to do it the right way but to not squander that passion that you could pour over in the rest of your life and you can leverage it to make awesome decisions for your future, your family, your wealth, your health um, So I always come back to we are all blessed to be hunters because it's such a unique thing to be excited to get up early and go, I don't know, walk around in the mountains Yeah. like we dream about it year round. It's a weird thing. And I think it's a special thing that you're lucky if you have that. A lot of people don't have something that fires them up year round like we do. And so if you're a hunter, consider yourself blessed and then figure out, get to thinking, how can I leverage hunting to make everything else better in my life?
0: Okay, so... So a little bit of a tangent aside, let's back up there a little bit because I think you raise a really interesting point because some people come to it and it takes this spot on this shelf and it's this thing they do once a year and they don't put a whole lot of thought into it and they enjoy it, but it's not like a defining characteristic. And then there's other individuals like ourselves where it becomes this North Star. Like it, it it's part of what defines me as, as a man. It's not all of it, but it's, it's a big part of it. So go back to 18 years old, you're done high school. Now, maybe you're not quite as focused on the sports. You're going to get into your studies. How does hunting come back into your life at this point? And what we're still in Washington, I'm assuming, what what does hunting look like at that point for you?
1: Well, there was a pivotal moment where elk hunting changed my life. Okay. There was an epiphany and I've, The shortest version of the story is I killed an elk with a rifle. My first time ever going out elk hunting with my dad and and about five minutes into opening day. Now there was some scouting involved, but we were two dudes who didn't know anything about elk hunting. We actually were trying to find deer to to hunt and we stumbled upon elk. Just happened to be days away from the elk opener. So we did what anyone would do. And we went down to the gas station and bought two up tags over the yeah. counter. Love it. And then we went and killed a bull. I shot it with a rifle 20 yards away. Didn't look through the scope. We didn't even know that you cut up elk into quarters and packed them out on your back. We didn't know. We, we, we drug it out. We used come alongs and chainsaw winches and got a trailer to it and drove it out whole. But dude. When I saw that elk hanging in my dad's garage, and we when it was butchered up, and I saw how much meat we got off that elk, and how big the body was, and how good the food was, I didn't really think about deer hunting much after that. I was like, I want to hunt these things when they're bugling and rutting.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, you need a bow to do that? Great! I'll go. I went down to the closest archery shop and bought a bow pretty much sight unseen just was like which boat do I need that one great thank you oh I need arrows cool I'll take those and I started shooting and I called my uncle up and said hey uncle Kurt you elk hunt in Idaho archery I want to get into it can I go with you he said yes and then I cleared my schedule as a personal trainer I talked to my professors I said I'm not going to be in Spokane till October 1st I'm elk hunting the entire month And that's what I did, and that's what I've done ever since that happened. And I haven't missed an elk season. And my elk season isn't, like you said, on a shelf. There's a time and a place for it. No, I'm all or none. That's my personality. So my 21 years of elk hunting or whatever it is are all entire archery elk seasons, month-long adventures. And I've never changed that. But that changed me because I sucked at elk hunting. And I, looking back, I struggled for four years chasing elk, learning how to get your teeth kicked in. I was like a student of the game, but I never killed an elk. I'd come back home every year with no tag punched. And I'd have two elk tags. I'd have one in my home state, one in Idaho, and I'd hunt the whole month. I'd come home empty-handed. And what it did for me is it made me have to look at my life and figure out, what can I do to make myself better October 1st till September 1st of the next year? Yeah. And that's kind of where my philosophy changed was like, this shit's hard. I'm going to have to make some changes in the way I train, the way I eat, the way I shoot, the way I scout. I need to understand elk behavior, biology. I need to learn how to call. I need to understand the language. And so it took me several years of cutting my teeth till I finally tasted that success. And, uh, and here, when I finally killed an elk with a bow walking up to that thing was one of the most important times in my life where I kind of understood the delayed gratification model yeah. and what all this hard work went into. Uh, and I'm smiling because yeah, To this day, I still, I get goosebumps when I walk up on an elk I killed because I know how hard I worked for it. And that's super special to me.
0: Okay, so I got a question, but first a little story. So almost identical trajectory, except I came to it much, much later in life. But, uh, and it was mostly through some YouTube stuff that I kind of discovered this whole like idea of uh, hunting elk in the rut with a bow. And in British Columbia... We don't really have a bow season, technically September 1st to 9th in some places, Um, but there's essentially zero incentive to hunt with a bow in British Columbia. So even from my first elk hunting adventures, I was looking south of the border because I did not want to compete against guys with rifles up here. There's also, there's a small island off the coast called Haida Gwaii where they have this really interesting elk population and they have a late elk season as well. But anyways, seven elk hunts in five years. To Kill My First Elk. Um, And I did it solo in New Mexico, White Mountain Wilderness. And I broke. Like when it, I can remember being on the phone with my buddy, like after walking up to him and actually physically seeing it. And I just started crying. And it was like, I was like kind of embarrassed, kind of not embarrassed. And it was like, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing emotions. And I don't think... I had allowed myself to process how much that prolonged failure had been affecting me. Like I don't tend to fail. And I don't say that out of arrogance. I say it out of, out of objectivity. I tend to be a person who's willing to put the work required in to get the output desired out. And when you it's math, man, when you do that, you tend to achieve what you want But elk hunting was like this mythical math math equation I couldn't solve. I kept putting the energy in. But it got to the point where it even got a little bit rough for my wife and I. Like, I would come home, and she's a vegetarian, which is another story. Oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah, so it's a bit of a weird dynamic. But she would be like, please, God, let him kill something. Right. Because I can't have him come home again like a bear, hating himself, you know. And that was so, I'm interested in that as well. And I, I was able to process that. And, you know, I learned, one of the biggest lessons for that I learned is that no matter how my season goes, no matter what my season is, I walk in that door with a smile on my face and a stuffy for my kid. Because they're not, they didn't ask me to go away for two weeks. They didn't ask me to go live in a tent on the top of a mountain. Like they didn't require me to do any of those things that I may be like really grumpy about inside because I didn't get the goal that I wanted to get or whatever other, you know, temporary thing I think is important at that day. They didn't sign up for that. They need me present. And that's, we'll talk about that more deeper on the conversation, but that hit me hard, man. Like I'd be interested in like, what was that failure like to you? Because you also don't seem like somebody who would be used to that type of repetitive failure.
1: Yeah, I I could not crack the code, man. Like my uncle, God bless him. But he wasn't like, he was a great backpacker. He could find elk. He would never killed an elk with a bow either, you know? And so he was taking me where elk were and we were trying so hard. And part of the problem was, and if your listeners don't know, I'm pretty transparent, so I apologize. But I was under the spell that elk hunting was what I saw on TV or VHS. Yep. I didn't know that these hunts were at private ranches with insane amount of money, even in the early Primos videos, man. Yep. They're, they're not on public land. No. They're not, they're not hunting the same style. So no wonder their tactics aren't working for me. And so it was, it's pretty discouraging to try to see these guys calling these elk in and they're running in and they're getting shots and, Why is this not working for me? Why do I suck so bad? And so, no, man, it it, it was tough, but it, it drove me. It was a driver. And I'll never regret those four straight consecutive archery seasons of not getting anything killed. It was like, man, I would never trade those. I would never trade them at all. So,
0: so this is, this is obviously more, more complicated than like a, a sing, single answer, but what do you think it is that turns the corner to like repetitive success? Because I think we've all had those lucky hunts. I know when, I know when something happens because of my skill and when something happens because I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. And I'll still take some credit for those ones. Cause at least my ass got out of bed, but I know, but I know which ones those are. And then I'm. I feel like there's a couple key areas I still have such a long way to go where I am getting to that point where I feel routinely capable of of repetitive success. But what are what are some of the hallmarks you think or some of the things that changed where you felt more in control? Like it's it's not going to be lucky if I get home get an elk home this year. It's going to be the result of the the actions that I've taken and I feel confident you know that that, that is a is a reasonable likelihood.
1: Probably a a mixture of things, but um, paranoia. I hate the feeling of not being successful in a, in a pursuit that is largely built upon failure. Welcome to bow hunting. Uh, So the paranoia for me sets in October 1st. And so I don't, I don't have laurels to rest on Uh, the slate gets wiped clean um, these are doctrines that I believe in. These are things that keep me hungry. Um, 2022, I always tell myself every year, brand new year. I haven't killed an elk in 2022. I'm as good as a, a newbie. Like neither one of us are proven. And so what can I do each and every day to move the needle closer? And so these are the things that I do, um, because there are, there is no certainty except that it's going to be hard. I'm going to be hiking a lot. I'll probably be sleep deprived, dehydrated, fatigued, homesick, and it'll probably be an opportunity on an elk and the shot will be maybe a little tricky uphill, downhill, steep quartering two, which I hate, you know, all these things that, so I've just dissected elk hunting down to what can I control? What can I not control? Okay. Put those, uncontrollables off and just put your head down and work on everything you can control and then leave every elk season and this is the most important thing I'm going to say leave every elk season behind you with a feeling of there was no stone unturned I squandered zero time I gave every day all I had And I have no regrets. And if I don't kill an elk, but I did all those things I said, then it is what it is. And I can move forward. But if there's an elk or a bull bugling and there was 45 minutes left, the daylight left, and I talked myself out of going after him and I'm like, ah, he's too far down there. The wind might be funky. You might not get down there in time. Plus, once you get all the way down there, it could get dark. Then you're going to have a two-hour hike out. It's not worth going down there. And that little voice is a liar because you have to, you got to go. You got to go see, you got to roll the dice uh, because those opportunities are few and far between. So for me at the end of the elk season, I have to be able to look at myself in the mirror and say, did you give it 100% effort? Did you control all the controllables? And if I can say yes, then I don't care if I didn't get an elk or not. I mean, it's going to sting, but it's still no regrets. If that makes sense.
0: No, it makes, it makes a, it makes a hundred percent sense. And I think. The, the the first time I really appreciated that was at the end of my, I think it was the end of my 2019 season, and I'd ended up doing the second half solo when I was in the northern Northern Rockies, and uh, and, and yeah, I don't need to like go into detail about how difficult it was. It was just one of those ones where you come out like a husk of a man, like you're just empty eyes, like you're just dead inside. And it was one of the first times that I didn't feel that, that like acid taste of failure in the back of my throat, even though I'd come, I came home empty handed because I felt like I'd come far enough in my hunting career or my discipline that like I, I did the things I was supposed to do. And I, and I left it all on the mountains. And there was, I could honestly say there was not a single stone left on turn. Like I did not have one more ounce of gas in the tank. There was nothing. And I hadn't made any dumb mistakes. And it was like some days that's all you got. Because this is the thing I love about hunting. And, and, and I say, the way I say it is hunting is something you need to do perfect and still have 5% luck. Like, there's still these intangibles that are out of your control. And if a couple of those don't fall your way, it doesn't matter how perfect you are, you could still come home empty-handed. And I think that's, it's like the great humbler, because you have to be willing to, like, there is no perfect hunter. Where I feel with other disciplines and sports, like, there is this, like, version of perfect. And it's one of the things I love so much about hunting, because... I feel like no matter how long you do it, you, there is no end to the to the personal progression.
1: I like that because, um, man, I've been on that mountain that you're describing where you're entirely depleted, and I'll be honest, like Jay, I crave that depletion. I cannot even describe the feeling when I come off the mountain, and I know that I'm like extremely exhausted incredibly unhealthy, like sleep deprivation a ridiculous amount of miles of boot leather on the mountain. And, uh, it's like, it's like uh, a rebirth for my soul. I haven't answered an email or text in a full, like, I don't know how long I haven't been distracted about anything. I'm just like primal. I'm in the mountains and I'm, I'm exhausted, but yet I have, I don't think I'm that's like the most alive I ever feel and eat regardless of the outcome, which that's what you're talking about. Yeah. That's not the 5% luck thing. Didn't happen, but I am like literally on cloud nine. Cause I feel so alive because I had this thing that pushed me to my end that uh, I don't get, I don't get that feeling going bowling or out to the movies or having a beer. I just don't get that feeling, that connection with God. Like none of that, like, even comes close and then to your point man everything can change in 10 seconds and that's why i love bow hunting elk is because you can go from zero which you are a zero most of the times so the roller coaster rides always down it seems like to the highest of highs in 10 seconds if you kept your head in the game and kept grinding and that's the biggest thing i i've learned and that's my greatest takeaway from bow hunting is you're never out until you call it quits so if you can stay in it you know that little bit of luck could change at any time. Are you ready for it, or are you walking down the trail, kicking rocks, feeling sorry for yourself, which
0: is the lowest hanging fruit? Hundred percent. Okay, so let's assume we haven't terrified all all the newbies with the with the discussion. What and and maybe it's better to talk about mental perspective than any like you know physical characteristics. But you know where do these newer guys start because i think it's such an an overwhelming thing to get into like there's so many barriers to entry i also think there's more solutions and information at our fingertips now than ever before by orders of magnitude But even that in itself can be overwhelming because it's like, well, I don't know, do I take this guy's camp or that guy's camp or read this guy's ebook or pay for that guy's online universe? Like it's that in itself can be overwhelming. What would you what would you say to guys? Because the tag, you know, draws are going in. Now's when I'm getting messages. I'm thinking about, you know, doing my first elk hunt this fall. You know, what should I do? What do you say to these guys? What's the what how do you how what's a good place to start? Wow, okay. So and that's
1: a good question. Uh, I would say take sips off the fire hose. It's, I mean, it's going to be coming in hot guys. And obviously it's overwhelming. And, um, even me like been hunting this long, it's so hard to keep it all straight, especially like you guys have providences. We have every state's got its own entity, its own rule book, its own nuance. This guy says to Zig, but this guy says to zag, like, who do I believe? I get it. So I guess we'll just, I'm like always bottom line Dan. I'm like, let's just boil it. Let's distill it down to like the things you need to remember. You can't get better at elk hunting on the sidelines. So go elk hunting. Even if that means you buy an over-the-counter tag in Utah and you're hunting cow elk. Well, you're hunting elk. There'll be some bulls. You can't shoot them, but you can certainly learn behavior and and study them. And you're going to learn more on that trip. And you get to test your gear, test your metal, see what you're made of, navigate the mountains. So just don't sit on the sidelines, go elk hunting Utah or my state Washington's got over the counter elk tags, East or West. I mean, it's not world-class hunting, but you're elk hunting, Uh, Colorado, find somewhere and go elk hunting. Don't sit on the sidelines. Uh, As far as who to listen to, you know, it doesn't matter what they say. It probably won't even all click until you're in the mountains and then you're You're like, make the mistake which you're gonna mm-hmm. and you're like oh that's what they meant like it happens at my camps i put on like i tell the guys you're drinking from a fire hose for three days some of the stuff you're not going to retain and then you're going to experience what i told you not to do and then it's going to click it's yep. the only mistake if you do it twice so learn and then the, the, the thing that's the most important when in this discussion is to understand or define your your idea of success not social media uh, which is a powerful thing. We all have social media. We all look at social media. We all get jealous when we see someone killing an elk and we didn't. Um, you can be lucky as shit and kill an elk one year. Yeah. You're not, luck does not, people who kill elk year in and year out, that's not luck. Nope. Okay. So there's a difference. Uh, their level of success and all that stuff is great be happy for them but don't compare yourself to them because it will steal it'll rob your joy if you sat down and am like okay this is my first year of elk hunting if i can safely survive seven days away from cell phone service not talking to my loved ones only through a garmin inreach just letting them know i'm alive maybe it's solo you've never backpacked solo before like there's all these little wins that could be a successful hunt. Like you heard your first bugle or you had your first elk encounter, or you understood where bedrooms are feeding features. I don't know, maybe you filtered water for the first time. I don't know what success is for you, but only you should define it. Not anyone else.
0: I I love this, man. I get so, and I know I, I shouldn't, but there's this there's this trend, you know, with some of the bigger people on social media, or whatever, they kind of get, you know, you know, they pick up a bow and six months later, they're on some dude's ranch in Utah. And like, that's what people see as elk hunting. And I get really upset. And what I do is I curate my feed. When I see those types of things going on, I just nuke those accounts because it's like, I just don't need that, that pollution. But if I look back, it was like, it was that the culmination of all those small wins over that five years of failure, like I, I if I almost would have regretted going out and being successful in that first year, like I think as a, as a man, I had more growth, you know, spiritually and psychologically and emotionally over the course of those five years because of stacking up those little wins and doing my first solo trip and, you know getting that first call back that I still remember it to that, to this day. Like I'd probably been elk hunting for three years before I made a vocalization and very clearly and immediately had one vocal. And I was just like, like I was by myself and I'm looking around. I'm like, shit, like who do I share this with? Like I literally just talked with an elk, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I love it. And I think, you know, I'm going to I'm going to keep that one in the back pocket cuz what I would recommend to these new guys is like go make a list of two or three of those. Like what are what what are just a couple of things that would, you know, even figuring out your own backpacking food for the first time or like like you're saying going on your on your first trip, finding your first water, like these are these are things that should be celebrated, but I almost think get lost because the like, you know, it's such a contrast to Everybody wants to see this giant rack of this, you know, this dinosaur with this tree sticking out of its head. Um, And everything else kind of pales in comparison. But if you take a moment and appreciate it for what it is, like, there's a lot of beauty and a lot of opportunity before the actual kill ever takes place.
1: I couldn't agree more, man. And uh, I think knowing why you hunt is so important nowadays. There's a lot of critics out there of influencers. I hate the word influencer. But I'm, I've, I've waved a white flag. People will call me an influencer. That's fine. But guess what, bro? I'm Elk Hunting, multiple states. If there's no Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, I'm not changing. I've been doing that since I killed that first elk. But there's more and more critics of said influencers. And my point of that is, is like that is that's fine if you want to criticize the way other people do their thing. But going back to the principle of you need to know why you hunt. For me, right. I, I know if I kill a really big bull, it'll get a lot of likes and maybe it'll add more clout or street cred to what I'm selling. So that's why I decided middle finger to that. I'm not selling anything but hard work. Right. That's what I can sell and sleep good at night knowing that I'm not trying to sell some shortcut. I'm selling hard work. I'm selling delayed gratification and discipline and I'm trying to kill out because I enjoy eating them. End of story. And so that's my prerogative is to put elk meat in that freezer over there and that freezer in that garage and my freezer upstairs. And for us to have literally an abundance of elk meat that we can eat with our family and share with our friends. Why do you guys elk hunt? If you don't know the answer, you need to take some time, write them down or think about it. Um, obviously, there's a lot of cool things about elk hunting, like adventure seeking. I love Wanderlust. I go to all these new places. Uh, elk take me to places I have no business seeing. Uh, and and adventure, the test, all that stuff's cool. But at the end of the day, I know it's not for content. I know it's not for likes or for sponsorship. I know it's who I am. And I wouldn't challenge the new guys to start your career off proper define why you are hunting and stay true to yourself.
0: Okay. So this segues perfectly into something that I think is also profoundly interesting about yourself. I would like you, I can't remember if it's like four or five, to share your priorities in your life from number one priority down to whatever that fourth or fifth thing. Because I think people who aren't aware of what those are might find it somewhat counterintuitive because you would think based on the 45 minutes we've been talking that elk are the most important thing in your life. And I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and hazard a guess that that's not what's sitting at that number one spot.
1: Yeah. Elk's number four friends. Faith first, faith for me is that I believe in Jesus. I am I'm not Mormon. I'm not any, i just believe that Jesus, that is my faith. That is, um, If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, but I just, that's where I'm at. I'm a Christian first and foremost. I don't always act like one, which makes me a perfect Christian because I fail consistently and I need that redemption. Number two is family, like my marriage, then my kids and not in reverse. So marriage, you know, having that strong relationship with my wife and um, putting her needs over mine, as well as the kids. Number three is fitness or health, like taking care of your fitness, uh, your longevity, Making sure that it's sustainable, making sure that you're creating the best version of yourself. Number four is elk hunting. And then the last one is career, number five. And I always go back to I've quit jobs for elk hunting. So career cannot be over elk hunting. And I love that stuff. It drives me. I've now created for myself kind of a career that involves elk hunting, which could be dangerous, right? Like it might make more sense for more people to maybe just be a really good entrepreneur in real estate or something and then have an abundance of money and time to go elk hunt but that's not me uh but yeah that's my elk is number 4 believe it or not and um i got to remind myself of that
0: no i i i get it man and i love it and i think i think we can get confused and i think when we get confused we risk losing the things that are important to us. And I don't think that means we have to give up or compromise or, or have a, like a less bright version of that thing that we're interested in. It's just that like, I got confused for a while with the whole like family and, and hunting thing. And I get dangerously obsessed with things. And I, I was close to like, I'm not going to say I was like close to lose my marriage, but like I came home a few times to like a, a legitimately and reasonably pissed off wife. And, and I had to sit back and I had to learn. I'm like, Same. okay, yeah, yeah, and I'm like, oh, wait a second. If I put her f- before hunting, this whole hunting thing gets a whole lot easier. And it's like, it's January now that we sit down and I go over the year. I'm like, here's what I'm thinking. The, all this shit's up for debate. But like, you know, there's three or four big ones. This is about when they would occur. They're going to be about this long. What's that? How's that sit with you? Like, let's talk about this. Like, oh, she's a publisher. She has a magazine that goes to print at the end of the month. Okay, so... Being away for the last week of the month, most months, makes her life more difficult. Okay, we'll go away for the middle two weeks. like, And just having that discussion. And like really, one of the hardest lessons I had to learn, it was before my New Mexico elk tag. And I was just like, it was a Sunday before I left. It was supposed to be a family day. And I got obsessed that my bow was out of tune. And I spent all day at the range while she was at the, her parents. I was supposed to be at the in-laws. And I got home and it was just a shitstorm. And when I left the next morning at like 3.30 in the morning, I just had this pit in my stomach. And I phoned her on the way and I, and I made up for it, but it was like this mental milestone. I was like, that is never happening again. I don't leave under those circumstances. And now no matter what I got to do, that last day is nothing but family. And it's like, yeah, maybe we'll go out for dinner. Maybe I'll take the kid to the park. Maybe I'll let my wife go to yoga in the morning and just take the kid all day. Like whatever it's going to be, that lets them feel like they were taken care of and paid attention to and are important to me. Because then when I leave, like the heart is is free and clear. And it's like, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but the things that send you home are not the things that you think are gonna send you home. And I find entering into a hunt, especially the more... Tip the difficult solo ones I enjoy doing, it's entering into it with that type of emotional and mental baggage is going to hamstring you way more than what food you brought or what tent you brought or what boots you're wearing. And being able to clear that mind space and that heart space before you go in. And that shit, it, it honestly just takes years of fuck-ups, excuse my language, to, to realize that, you know, I don't want to feel like that when I'm on a hunt because it ruins it for me. And I don't, I can't bring the focus I want to it, but it's counterintuitive and I'm kind of droning on. But the only way for me to realize that was that they have to be more important than that for me to be successful at that.
1: Dude, I got nothing really to add other than um, hunting solo will magnify what we're talking about. And it's not even family. Like, there's some shit I've done in my life that I'm not proud of. And I didn't realize I wasn't that proud of it till this stuff was coming up in my mind while I was trying to kill an elk by myself in the back country. Yep. And I was like, Hmm, th- there's some stuff I got to take care of at home when I get home. And yep. thank you for the clarity. I'm not going to let this affect my hunt next year. I'm going to handle it. My handle, my business, when I get home, maybe it's somebody, maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's my, my older sister just doesn't like to talk to me anymore because I did something. Well, let's, pet the, let's figure that out. Put the petty stuff aside, like, aside and let's make up and let's, or it's a coworker or it's a friend or maybe it's a, a business competitor and you guys have bad blood, like life's short. And so that's another thing about solo elk hunting for me is like, I get a lot of clarity and if there's some stuff of skeletons in the closet, dude, that stuff's going to, that stuff's going to rear its ugly head. And it's going to distract you from what you set out to do. So tip the scales at home, family first, make sure that, you know, you're making deposits into their love bank accounts.
0: Oh, I like that. Yeah, And then
1: don't, uh, don't bring any BS to you in the mountains, handle all those skeletons before you head, especially you solo elk hunters. You'll see
0: what I'm talking, you'll see what we're talking about. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a different animal, man. And it's funny. You said you crave that, um, that like physical depletion at the end, I relate totally. And for me too, I like the, like I'm doing my first, this will be my longest one yet. I'm going 14 days solo for Stone's Sheep Hunt in August. And I'm, I am I crave that kind of going crazy feeling in the middle, like starts to sink in around day six or seven. And you're like, you haven't actually verbalized words for multiple days. And you start like going to these really weird places in your head. And it's like, I'm already like, I'm looking forward to it. Like there's just an intensity. And I was having this conversation with a friend the other day. And I think there's a purity and I'm not going to get on my solo soapbox. I think you can achieve this through any version of, of whatever hunting is for you. I think this is achievable through that. But at the end of the day, there's a purity to it. Like a purity of pursuit. Like when I'm in those mountains chasing that thing, everything else falls away. And I don't think I have a hard time replicating that level of presence in other areas of my life. Like that's my shining North star. And when I come home, I remember what it felt like to be that present and in the moment. And then I try and and do my best at recreating that when I'm paying attention to my family or when I'm working on my business or when I'm at the gym training. And I, I, I would argue I'm never quite as, as good at getting that, that purity, but- that's what it boils down to for me. And that's what I find myself longing for. The longer I do this, it's less about the trophy shot and the glory of the kill and all like those, those play in my mind. I'm not going to lie. I'm a, I'm a man. I have vanity and I, I, you know, I enjoy accolades and I like being successful and, and those, those are part of it. But what I find myself thinking about and, and fantasizing about is that, the purity and the simplicity and, and the isolation, like that's the stuff that like really gets me fired up in the off season.
1: No. Yeah, man. I I definitely haven't had the isolation, the simplicity uh, since September, really, to be honest with you. So, I mean, you're just sparking up nostalgia. I'm like thinking about, yeah, that that's right. Because it is such a simple make a living in the mountains and, uh, what a test too. like, I crave that test. And and yeah, man, I always come back to, I want to leave the mountains very much depleted, but also as full, like, as the best version of Dan is coming home to his family with a lot of clarity. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people get that. And man, I don't even know if people can go without an hour without hearing their phone ding or vibrate or talk mm-hmm. to somebody uh, like all these notifications are coming at you a thousand miles an hour. And, um, I don't think we even know the long-term effects of that. I mean, it's scary.
0: Oh yeah. hundred percent. Okay. Listen, Dan, I want to be, I want to be cognizant of your time. I greatly appreciate everything you've given thus far. Could we bang off a few rapid fire IG questions for the, for the lads? Yeah, for sure. Um, Magnetic or non-magnetic bino harness? And I'll go even further. Just give me your your kind of top picks for bino harness.
1: I like magnetic. I have a marsupial. Um, it keeps all the debris from brush country and stuff out of my binos, and they're quiet. Uh, that's what works for me.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll second that. I was an Alaskan guide creations guy, for a year, and I just started running the marsupial last year. Just to test it. Um, And I'm very, you know, I still want to wear it somewhere before I kind of make my final conclusion. But I'm really, it's a much sleek, like, sleeker in that there's a lot less extra stuff, which I appreciate. Like, it's a very slim, you know, efficient design, which I like a lot. And I like their fabrics a lot, too. I just picked up some of their... They're like their possible pouches, but they made it with that new kind of stretchy material. And they came Mm -hmm. up with some in blaze orange, which I love because all my other kind of pouches like that are all this like drab color. And you fill up three or four of them and it's like, shit, I don't know which one has my batteries and which one has my whatever. So the fact that now that you can have a couple like different colors, I find helps with organizing gear a lot. Um, Late season elk hunting strategies. And he puts October in parentheses.
1: Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be dependent upon like what are we talking, you know, Rocky Roosevelt's what state, what's the, you know, is it arid desert, high desert? Is it timber? Uh, I mean, so that's so vague. I can't really give you the greatest answer, but October could be hit or miss. I mean, it could be full on peak rut. I mean, seriously, cows could be in their first extra cycle, their second extra cycle, They could be complete, herd bulls could be pulled off and just already heading to like their little isolation areas for refuge. Uh, I don't know. You're going to have to check the temperature of the elk and see what, where are they at? What are they doing? But no matter what month it is, you have to find out to kill elk. So understand what their needs are. Work your way backwards. They need food. They need water. Okay, well, what's available in October? Uh and then where are they getting like where are they spending majority of their daylight hours? Obviously in their bedding features. It's not always a north slope, it's always on a northeast side. Can, they do like benches. I mean, elk are fairly predictable, habitual creatures. And so you kind of need a like a checklist of things to go down and and start figuring that out. And then you can kind of sort it out. And then you can really start to cinch the news especially if you can get there a couple days prior to season to burn some of that non hunting time, you know, figuring it out.
0: Love it. I would also say, I will challenge your, just to the guy who asked the question late season, I would argue is like you mentioned more mid season, to be honest, I would think like November and early December is what would technically qualify as late season when you're looking up, people's different theories on, on elk behavior and stuff. So just keep that in mind too, because I think there's still like, you're saying there's still going to be a lot of that rut activity and they won't have like completely gone into bachelor groups and done the more classical kind of late, late season elky stuff that most people talk about. I got to claim ignorance on this next one. Do you know who Jeremy Lopez is? Yes. So I know a Jeremy Lopez. Dan, do you think you would beat Jeremy Lopez in a Metcon? Um,
1: Yeah, I would. But uh, (laughs) he's a really fit firefighter, military guy who's come to um, some of my ocean camps. Okay. Uh, I've been doing CrossFit a lot longer than him, but his advantage is he's considerably younger than me. So um, I would enjoy finding out. And if he beat me, I also wouldn't be very much surprised. A lot of people beat me at Metcons.
0: Okay, you know what? I, I got to derail this for a second here because there's one thing that I wanted to talk to you about that I forgot to bring up. Oh, yeah. You have a very interesting approach on, I forget how what you what you called it, like high-grade trash talking or high-stakes trash talking, yeah. putting money down on stuff. So here's an interesting little quick tale, then a question. So I used to be a DJ back in my college days, like a hip-hop turntablist, competitions, festivals, made a pretty good thing for myself and i noticed that how i pra- how i performed at home under ideal circumstances was not perfectly translating to how i was able to perform in a competition yeah. and basically my what I, the best way i have to explain it is my cuz it's highly intricate like finger movements with like scratching and juggling and i felt like my fingers would go dumb when i got in front of a crowd of people and it's basically like an adrenaline dump kills fine motor dexterity So I used to do this thing in the wintertime. I would open the windows. I lived in a studio apartment, downtown Vancouver. I would open all the windows, be like minus 10 outside. And I would practice in the freezing cold in my apartment because then my fingers would be dumb. And then if I could get to that, like 85% of my potential with these dumb fingers in the cold, Then when I was on stage with already yelling and all the noise and all the adrenaline, I could replicate those two performances. So by elevating this, I could also elevate it here. So I love this psychology of like stress inoculation or like stress replication. So talk to me a little bit about what some of your strategies are to create that in off-seasons and circumstances. Cause that's one of the things you can only stand in front of an elk if you're lucky a couple of times a year maybe so it's not something that we can you know rep out so so how do you think about that and what are some of the things you do to create those situations for yourself
1: yeah so i have had a lot of elk in front of me in archery range and even this year like i killed a bull in november i would never killed one from a ground blind ever okay. and i knew I saw him, I saw him coming in, I had time, Jay, my heart rate was maxed out. And I'm just laughing looking back. Cause I, you'd think, dude, that you can't screw this up, Staten. All you yeah. got to do is let him come in, get his drink of water. He's going to give you a broadside or a corner way shot. 20 yards, dude. How do you miss that? But my heart rate was so high. I can't even tell you. And I was just like trying to control my breathing. And that's why I hunt. I love that. Right. Yeah. But uh, no, I don't think you can duplicate that at all, like not even close. But what you can do is make sure that you have your shot process blueprinted, that you have like almost verbatim what you should be talking to yourself about in that moment instead of most people are like, oh, my gosh, this is happening. And then from there, it gets real like fuzzy and maybe even blacked out like you don't even remember what actually happened was you pulled your bow back, saw the pin kind of where you wanted it and kapow. I'm just talking archery or you hammered your trigger on your rifle. Whereas you can really blueprint what you talk yourself through kind of your own personal checklist, stay present in the moment. You still might punch it a little bit, but it's definitely a lot better than you just slamming rattlesnaking your trigger. And so I, I personally seek out very high, stakes pressure situations it's actually perceived pressure sure there's no real big pressure if i lose to my buddy for a case of beer but the perception is is like dude this shop means more than the one in my backyard when no one's looking and i'm in flip-flops so i've just figured that out a few years back to like try to put myself in some higher stakes trash talking um and literally while I'm at full draw trying to make a shot at 3D and my buddy's over here literally making fun of me and I could start laughing, but I got to stay focused. Like he's trying to distract me, get me off my game and we're competing for a few bucks cash. Um, I talk, I talk smack to my own archery coach. We're going to go shoot head to head in Montana. He'll probably beat me, but I'm still talking trash. I want him to have the pucker factor. And I just think, exposure to high perception, like perceived pressure with a backpack on maybe an elevated heart rate, but you're not using that as a way to, to punch the trigger even harder, but you're using that as fuel to make yourself more dialed on your checklist. It's like uh, my buddy, Joel Turner, he teaches shot IQ. He he's phenomenal archery coach. He literally told me to go to the archery range Walk up to a random stranger and say, Hey, watch me. I'm going to hit the bullseye and just have some stranger yeah. watch me shoot. And I'm like, that's the most absurd thing ever. But looking yeah. back, it's like, no, that's, that's kind of how you get reps in the red zone. So to speak,
0: Joel changed everything for me. So I took Joel's course and it was like, it was okay. I, I, I got what you would get out of an online course and it's a great online course. And I, I recommend it all the time on the podcast. And I had this coos deer hunt coming up and I just wasn't feeling ready. And I sent him an email cause I, like I thought he was somewhere near me or I thought he did these seminars. And, um, he sends me this email back. Yeah, this is where I'm at. Come on down. Just tell me what day you're coming. And I'm like, what? And, uh, yeah, just gives me his address. And like three days later, I'm at Joel's house. Yeah. I spent like f- four hours there. And, uh, We go over everything, like all the hitting on the head. Like I'm talking classic Joel experience, like everything you're going to hope for and more. And um, I go to leave and I'm like, dude, what do I owe you? And he's like, you owe me nothing. And I'm like, what? And he's like, you took the online course, man. I'm yours for life. Whatever you need, you just tell me. And I was just like, what the heck? Like, I don't know, man. Some of the people that you meet in hunting, it's like, and it's so serious to him. Like, we're talking about like passions and what drives us. Like that dude's need for people to understand like the psychological process that you go through while shooting and then master it. So you're not a victim of it is like very deep with like, that was that that's what that dude has been born and put on this earth to do. And so I I ordered a hinge release after that day. This is like three years ago. Now I've never shot with anything else since I hunt with the hinge. I practice with the hinge and my entire archery game changed that day. And I'm not pretending I'm some, like I still have a very long way to go as an archer, but like, I think I had a bigger progression in that, like from one set of principles than anything else that's ever happened. I think it's more important than the bow that's in my hand. I think it's more important than the arrow that's in the bow. Like it was, yeah, I owe, I owe him a lot. He, he, he had a very positive impact on me.
1: I owe him a lot. Cause I hire him. <laughs> To come to all my camps because I find him to be invaluable, yeah. and I find him to steal the limelight, and I'm totally cool with it because yeah. he should. I totally agree. Joel's one of my favorite people.
0: Yeah, no, he's a he's a badass. Um, all right, two more quick ones. Name one thing that has contributed greatly to your success professionally. Professionally.
1: Hmm. Without giving it a cliche answer, that's 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 the thing. Um, I don't know if I've had that much success professionally. To be honest with you, like I, I just grind it out, man. I'm a professional grinder, uh, so I'm not the most business savvy dude, certainly not. Uh, but rarely do I get outworked. So if you lack, you know the uh, the IQ or the business acumen, whatever the professional people, just just do you and grind it out. Like, be, be the hardest worker in the room. Be the hardest worker in the office. Be the hardest worker on the mountain. Uh, if that's all you can put your, you know, the feather in your cap is that you're hard worker, that's all I can do, and, and, and that's cool. And so, for me, it's, it's
0: work ethic. Love it, man. So this last this last question, I don't even think you're gonna be able to address it, but I'm gonna ask it anyways, because it's something I hear a lot as a Canadian. Why okay. does it seem harder to hunt elk in Canada than the States?
1: Yeah, no shit. I mean, I nearly married a Canadian. I was very like before my I got married, the, the yeah. girl before that, I mean, we also broke up because I hunted too much, which is like a blessing in disguise, but <laughs> Uh, we had dated for two years. She was from, um, originally from Lethbridge Okay. And I would go up, and uh, we dated for a couple of years. So we'd go up to her family's place. Oh god, a, somewhere near Kimberly. Okay. And I'd see all the elk, and I'd see them in the most beautiful mountains ever. Yeah. And I'm just like, dude, I got an elk hunt here someday. This place is amazing. But uh, now looking into Canada, it's like. Do I want to go to Alberta and hunt farm field elk and like, is it high fence? I can't really tell. And like, I tell you right now, with whoever's in charge of your country, I, I'm probably not. Gonna, I don't have anything. I don't have any of that in my arm. So like, you're not I'm coming sure, anyways, I'm bro. Sure, shit ain't gonna be able to cross the border. But um, yeah, yeah. It's always been kind of like you gotta have a guide. I don't want a guide. Uh, so. It's been tricky, but I think speaking for myself and maybe my fellow lower 48 states peoples is like, dude, Canada's Mecca. Canada is so unmolested. Canada is so dense with wild landscapes and crazy animals that it's on all of our radars. Like the fact that you're going sheep hunting, you're probably going sheep hunting in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. And It's I don't want to talk about how like that's an opportunity for you. Whereas for me, that's
0: yeah. a 55 dollars $60,000 hunt right now. Yeah, 100%, especially for stones, which is, which is what, and it's an over-the-counter tag for me. I think it's 40 bucks or something. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think the, the one people thing get somewhat confused about British Columbia is that like opportunity, like the ability to go and hunt something doesn't necessarily you're going to get an opportunity at it. I've done a lot of hunting in the States and I've done a lot of hunting in Canada and the States has done a far better job, A, of wildlife management. They treat it more like a business. And it is, it is like, I'd rather pay, like, when I go to Montana, they charge me 800 bucks for an elk tag. I'm like, take my money. Uh, you deserve it because of what you put back into yeah. these herds. Here it's like 20 bucks, And the old timers just dig their heels in. It's like, well, guys, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get people who don't give a shit and don't do proper surveys and don't. So our our wildlife populations are not nearly as dense as yours. That being said, I can buy over-the-counter tags for nine different big game species every single year. That's insane. I would never complain about it. Number two is the infrastructure. The vast majority of British Columbia has like never been touched for almost anything. Whereas when you go to a place like Montana or Wyoming, you are going to be really hard-pressed to at any point in time be any more than like 2 to 4 miles away from some type of horse trail as the crow flies. Like as as backcountry guys, we're looking for those like I'm drawing circles on the map to get to that spot that's as far away from a horse trail as possible, thinking that's where pressure's going to be reduced. But the efficiency with which you can get to those areas because of trail systems and trailheads and like infrastructure that that the state has has put there And like Canada just doesn't have anything like that. So now you're like, you know, this year I'm going to be a float plane. So I'm getting dropped off in a float plane. I'll have a small alpaca um, raft with me and I'll be like, you know, in this tiny little dinghy boating across a lake trying to get to the other side in order to like start hiking up this mountain. And there will be no trail. There'll be no nothing. So I, I think there are a few reasons why the one thing that I regret as a Canadian is that you guys, the way you treat public land, it's its literally almost as much mine as it is yours. Like, 100%. I, as a non-resident, Montana doesn't give a shit if I live in BC or California. You're just, you don't pay taxes here? Okay, you go into that draw pool. But you have just as much right as the people who live here. And the amount of like, Oh, just love and respect I have for that system. And the the way people in the States have always opened their arms to me. And there's always a little bit of, you know, you're in my backyard type stuff. And I like that because it should be, there should be a little bit of tension sometimes. It's like going surfing in Hawaii. You'd almost be upset if you didn't kind of almost get in a fight. But whereas like Canada, unless you got a bunch of money, you're screwed. Like you cannot, even my father, I'm bringing in from Ontario for a caribou hunt this September. And I have to fill out a bunch of paperwork and they just got back to me and they're like delaying it. They don't even tell me why. Maybe we'll let him in, maybe we won't. And it's like, he's my father and he's a Canadian citizen and he still just can't walk across the border into BC and hunt. So, and those are things I'm not proud of. Like I wish our our government embraced some of the like founding principles that yours did, but it is what it is. There's a lot of other, I don't want to shit on my country because there's a lot of other cool stuff. Although I will say, you know, the last few, we're, we're not at our best right now. Let's just say that. The
1: cool thing is, is you guys are on a lot of our radars. Like right. you're in a lot of our prayers. Um, it is what it is. I think you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we got a lot of people even down here rooting yeah. for some good to come out of this.
0: 100%. We feel it. Um, Dan, I don't want to steal any more of your time. This has been so beneficial. I'm so grateful that, that you were able to hop on. You've always been somebody I looked up to in the industry, um, for your work ethic and just the way you approach life in general. So it was a, it was an honor and a pleasure, brother. Thank you very much.
1: Likewise, man. I appreciate your time. Um,
0: yeah. quick shout outs. I'll put show notes for everything down in the links, but maybe give people a quick recap. What, what do you got going on I don't even. Your camps are probably all fully booked, but yeah. just any, anything where people can find you and and what you got going on right now.
1: Yeah, well, I'm selling hard work. Just remember that um, we do a couple of elk shaped camps a year. Those are already spoken for for 2022. We'll probably do again only four in 2023. They're not just for newbie elk hunters. They're for everybody. And I hardly even presented them. I have all my Joel comes to my camps and Jason Phelps and Dirk Durham from Phelps Game Calls and Mark Levisay on the e-scouting. So I just bring together a bunch of subject matter, max, uh, subject matter experts in one room and then I get a bunch of guys to come to these camps and then they network with each other as well. So it's kind of cool to see everybody coming together and usually... I've had people hunt together lifelong buddies from that point going forward. It's been cool. We've been doing this. This is year five. So elk shape camps are huge for me because it's where we get to do our thing in person and get back. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm on YouTube. I'm on, I've got a podcast website, all that stuff. You can find it easy, searchable. We do the elk collective. So if you really want to dive into elk hunting and you want to do it virtually, Check out the elkcollective.com. And that's where we've just brought all these subject matter experts and asked them, How do you kill elk? And learn their um, there's so many ways to skin a cat. So we learn all the tricks and trades from each person, you know, your stalkers like Brian Barney and Ryan Lampers, who don't really call much to the guys that only call, like Dirk Durham and Jason Phelps and Chris Rowe and the Elk Nut and they all say that elk are saying similar things, but then they all have like their own little spin and it's been cool. I've learned so much from these guys. And so it's all kind of in one place. So that's the elkcollective.com, but uh, that's, yeah, that's kind of what we got going on, man.
0: Sounds great, man. And like I say, for everybody, I'll put all links to all that stuff in the show notes. if you need any place to find it. All right, man, I wish you nothing but the best and and thanks again. I truly appreciate it.
1: Hey man, I'll be rooting for you on your doll hunt. That's incredible. 14 solo, um, mad respect, be safe, come home. And I can't wait
0: to hear all the stories. Awesome, man. I appreciate it, brother. All right. Take care. All right. You too. All right, folks, there you have it. An hour and a half with Dan, the man Staten elk shape. Um, yeah, I wasn't quite sure where that one was going to head, but that was a super enjoyable podcast. I almost feel like I leave some of these like so fired up. I have a problem going and like focusing on work for the rest of the day. Like I just want to go out and shoot my bow and get ready for elk season now. I'm just, I couldn't be more excited. I love the way that Dan looks at things. It was a great conversation to have. So as always, if you could engage with the platform, like, comment, share, subscribe. What really helps is leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice. And I want to thank people that have been doing that. I noticed the Apple Podcast reviews have gone way up lately and we're I have more rankings and more reviews than some like major, major podcasts in the industry. And I think that's because of how engaged you guys are. And I I, I can't thank you enough for that. It truly it means a lot. And as always, if you're into some merch, head on over to mindfulhunter.com slash shop, pick yourself up a t-shirt or a hat. Uh, Those funds directly help take care of the podcast and everything I do here. So as always, thanks for tuning in.